Kevin Mondro here, Coach Dro, D-R-O. Welcome back to the Tell Me Your Story Coach podcast, the podcast where we advocate coaches and help young coaches learn from the coaches telling these stories. Before we get to today's incredible young head coach, I just wanted to share something really cool that I recently read on Twitter. Everyone knows who John Gordon is, by far the most positive person on the face of this earth. What is culture? A massive topic covered in this podcast. John tweeted about culture this past week, and I had to share, quote, consistency creates culture, end quote. Great stuff, Coach Gordon. Today, we are talking to Coach Noel Emenheiser, and we have a treat for you. Talk about a high-level, active learner. This head coach never stops learning, trying to get better at his craft. Noel Emenheiser is the head coach at Madonna University. Madonna is a terrific NAIA school in a great conference with a bunch of great programs, great players, and for sure, great coaches. Noel has been the head coach at Madonna since he was 25 years old. Fast forward. 12 years later, Noel has the most wins in school history. Oh, by the way, Noel is also the all-time leading scorer at Madonna. And I said it in podcast number one. Coaches can coach no matter what level. And Coach Emmenheiser can flat-out coach and lead. Subscribe, rate, and review on whatever platform you are currently listening. Remember, we are everywhere. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and so much more. Please keep telling your coaching friends about this podcast. Remember, the bigger audience we can create, the bigger impact we can make with younger coaches. Follow Tell Me Your Story Coach on Instagram at Tell Me Your Story Coach. Follow Tell Me Your Story Coach on Twitter at Coach Kevin Dro. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Kevin Mondro. Enough of Coach Dro. Let's get to Coach Noel Emenheiser and tell his story. Real quick, before Coach Noel's story, I need to tell you about my affiliate partner that I've been supporting since episode one. That friend, Desmond Ferguson, the owner of Moneyball Sportswear. Check out MoneyballSportswear.com. Let me tell you about the gear that Moneyball produces. Men's, women's, boys and girls sports attire. Hoodies, sweatshirts, t-shirts, shorts, you name it, Moneyball has it. Get all your winter gear. That's right, I said it. Winter gear here, ASAP. Truly, what are you waiting for? If you are a high school and or AAU coach and you need a new set of uniforms for your upcoming season, please reach out to Moneyball. The uniforms that Desmond and his team create are simply spectacular. Go to MoneyballSportswear.com. Shop away. Enter the promo code DRO. D-R-O in the coupon checkout. Grow with us. Moneyball, the only way to ball. Noel, why do you coach? Well, Drew, my selfish reasons for coaching are that I love the game. It's a passion of mine. I've been immersed in it since I can remember. And to get to do a job where my every day is, is being surrounded by basketball and people who love basketball is a dream come true. I do it because coaching demands my best. Uh, it requires me to try to be the best that I can for the players in our program, for the community, for everything that we're trying to accomplish as a team. Anything less than my best just won't allow us to get to where we want to go. And I love that in coaching, there is no finish line. There is no end in sight. If you do well one year, the, the challenge becomes to have success upon success. And that's never easy. And that's the better a team does, the more attention they draw from a, from an opponent. So preparing for and, and trying to rise to the challenge of having success after even moderate success is, is not easy. And I, I love that 
that challenge and the way it pushes me to try to grow and learn. And coaching is something that's extremely humbling. The moment you think you know something and, and that you can do something well, the game shows you that you are not there yet. But the real purpose of coaching, you know, those would be the aspects of coaching that, that I enjoy and that what I get out of it. And I think every good relationship has synergy and that there should be an equal return on what you put in and give. So, you know, what I hope to give by being a coach and your guests have all talked about impact and, and I couldn't agree more that having a platform to impact other people is a purpose for coaching, but but using the game as a tool to help others as well as myself to become better versions of ourselves, that conduit, that shared passion that the game of basketball can be to help each other to grow into our best version and connecting the lessons of sport into the lessons of life, of sacrifice, of goal setting, of commitment, of dedication, of you know understanding that nothing can be accomplished alone and that you're always going to be a part of the team and have a role on that team and a responsibility to help each other to be at their best. You know, I, I hope that I'm able to provide conditions that allow our players to see those things, to learn about teamwork that will then translate into their adult lives when the game of basketball is no longer able to be played at a competitive level, whether they choose coaching or whether they choose business or whether they go into teaching, that everything that happened in our program helped them to see some way that they could be more successful as a person beyond basketball. That's an incredible answer. You touched on so many great points. There's no finish line. Where did this thought process develop? I don't know. It just, you know, even a year where you, you feel like you had moderate success or you, you won a championship, there's an immediate sense. I mean, almost the day after that game or that season ends that we need to do more. We need to do better. How can I uh, lead our team to being a, a better version of what we were this past year? And so as a college basketball player, there's an end point. You only have four years to play as a college coach. You know, seemingly you can do it as long as you're able and somebody will let you. So there's never an ending point until you're done or nobody lets you coach anymore. And it should just be a constant and gradual improvement from one year to the next in your ability to coach and your ability to lead and resonate and teach and execute and all those things. And the game of basketball is so complex and ever evolving that there's endless opportunity to improve and get better and refine your philosophy and your beliefs and your ability to communicate that. So you are the current head coach at Madonna University and also the winningest coach in school history. We touched a little bit offline. You've been the head coach since you've been 25 years old. Noel, when did you know you wanted to coach? Well, to be honest, I never envisioned myself becoming a coach. I grew up in a, a small town outside of Fort Wayne, Indiana. I was immersed in basketball from the moment that I could remember, but in a farm family, you know, everybody that I grew up around was farmers. I remember hearing one time that 2% of the world's population was farmers, and I thought that was crazy because everybody that I knew farmed or was involved in agriculture in some way. So I didn't see college coaching or coaching basketball as a possible destination for my life, but I love the game. It, it afforded me the opportunity to play in high school and play in college and beyond. And when I got done playing, there was, you know, a sense of identity crisis where, you know, I had always viewed myself as a basketball player. And when I was no longer a basketball player, I wasn't quite sure who I was. So I, I stumbled around for just a little while wondering what would happen next. And, and my college coaches really encouraged me to consider getting into coaching. Their belief that I could do that and do that successfully not only motivated me to look toward an opportunity like that, but then the coach that I had my senior year, Chuck Henry, offered me an opportunity to come back 
from Madonna as an assistant coach. And when he stepped away from the game at 25, I was afforded the opportunity to take over. At the time, I thought I was ready. In hindsight, you know, I was nowhere near prepared to, to lead a group of men through a college basketball season or through their lives. And I'm eternally grateful for the opportunity that the athletic director at that time, Brian Rizzo, offered me to grow into the role, which I'm still working on doing. And I hope one day soon I'll actually be ready to be the head coach of Madonna. Chuck Henry, obviously his son, Charlie, an assistant coach at Alabama, crushing it. What did you learn from Coach Henry as a player? Yeah, I had one year with with Coach Henry. I'd played for Bernie Holowick, a legendary coach in the Detroit metropolitan area. The absolute Detroit legend. Catholic Central, <laughs> yeah. Top five in the state, all-time wins, won a right. state championship with CC. They beat Magic Johnson in the final four. Yeah. Uh, incredible legend. And he twilighted at Madonna. He's the reason that I came there. And so when Coach fell ill, we brought in Chuck Henry, who was an incredible coach. For sure. Um, he, he really helped me to develop a lot as a player, held me accountable, held me to a high standard and demanded of me to be a leader to, to the other guys on the team. And so that opportunity to play for him and to play for Coach Holowicki, two coaches that really believed in me and expected a lot out of me and demanded my best every day is something that I'm eternally grateful for. And that opportunity to play for them and the impact that they had for, on my life made me want to be a coach, but their belief in me made me believe that I could. So getting the chance to come back and work for Coach Henry for two years, you know, I learned a ton from playing for him about toughness, about grit. You know, he's a legendary Wayne High coach here in metropolitan Detroit and had some incredible teams and incredible players. And that same toughness and grit that his teams played with, he, he asked that of us at Madonna. And, you know, where our roster was at the time, we probably weren't quite able to give him everything that he he hoped for and expected. But and we sure tried and we were willing to play as hard as possible for him because of the level that he asked us to be at. So there's probably only a handful of coaches in the country that can say they're the all-time winningest coach at the school and also the all-time leading scorer at the school. So Madonna for sure is home for you. You touched about Indiana. Like, What was it like growing up in Indiana and playing basketball in that state? Yeah, growing up in Indiana, the state is in love with basketball. And it's evident to the outside world, people talk about it. But growing up in it, it's kind of all you know. And, you know, my my personal belief, having now lived outside of the state for a while and looking back in, you know, whatever a community cares about, it's young people are going to, to care about. So as a young person, we would go to the high school games in a small town. You know, the, the gym was full for the JV game because if you didn't get there in time, you wouldn't have a seat for the varsity game. So when there's that much excitement and enthusiasm and care for a team and a sport, you know, it motivates you as a young player to, to want to be on that stage, to be on that court, for the town to be proud of you and, and the team. And so I think it makes you a little more willing to, as a child, you know, dream of those moments and go out into the driveway or in our case, you know, the pole barn and dribble and shoot and do the things that you hope will give you the opportunity to one day play in front of the town and, and be somebody that they look up to and respect. And so just that community enthusiasm about basketball um, was so infectious that you wanted to go and work. And, you know, the town I grew up in was one of a thousand just like it. And so when you multiply that across the whole state, it just makes for an incredible atmosphere for good players. I think the best players in Michigan are the same as the best players in Indiana and the best players in Texas. But what Indiana really has is a lot of those guys just below the D1 level 
who are really good, but maybe not blessed with the athleticism or blessed with the, the size or have one other thing that might keep them from being a high major player. And that's why those these NAI schools, specifically in Indiana, are so good because the skill level of those next level players are, are phenomenal in Indiana. Yeah, I grew up Scott Skiles, Damon Bailey, Steve Alford. You know, I always just was enamored with the state of Indiana, how you guys would have this, you know, obviously the movie Hoosiers, you know, you would have the state tournament and you guys would play twice on a Saturday late, <laughs> late in the, in the, in March, which I'd never seen anything like that before. You guys would play at noon. And then if you were fortunate, you'd come back and play at eight. And it's just, just like one of the most incredible things that you could ever witness as a basketball fan. Absolutely. My freshman year of high school was the last year that they had the one class tournament, which is kind of what's depicted in Hoosiers is small schools competing against against big schools and uh, not dividing it up based on the size of the number of boys in the school, but one class and to even get to a sectional, which is the same as a Michigan district, mm-hmm. to even get to a sectional final is an incredible feat. And you'd hold it at the Fort Wayne War Memorial Coliseum. And I remember seeing just some incredible incredible games you know with six eight thousand people and that's at the you know the first round level and getting it getting past your sectional was was an incredible accomplishment making it to the regional was you know something only you dream of and to win a state championship at that time to be the one and only team to win a state championship was something that you know was so revered and just celebrated and obviously as time evolves you don't you don't fault anybody for those changes to divisions of basketball but to have one true state champion is something that it really made for some special special tournament basketball so you mentioned naia basketball what is the beauty of naia basketball well i think for a lot of things people entities that the greatest strength of something can also be its greatest weakness and so i think the greatest strength of the NAI is that, you know, it's not powered by financials. It's not powered by TV contracts and, and rating and those different things that influence high-level Division One basketball and the NCAA tournament and the money that surrounds the game. Ultimately, at that level, the money provides the opportunity and the resources to help those players to be so successful and to train and to pour into them. And so at our level, while we don't have that spotlight and we don't have that influence and occasionally, you know, you, the corruption that comes with power and money, mm-hmm. the NAI has a, has an opportunity to be a very pure game. You know, the coaches, myself included, if not especially, you know, we're not getting rich and we're not getting famous and we all understand that and we're good with it. So we get an opportunity to, to work in the game, to teach, to you know, experiment with our styles without the fine tooth microscope and the pressure of media and the pressure of a massive fan base. But the downside and the weakness to that would be that we don't have the resources. We don't have the opportunities maybe to advance either our program or, or ourselves as coaches in the way that, you know, other levels of basketball do. So, you know, it definitely is a double-edged sword. There's a lot of good and there's a lot of beauty in the game and there's a lot of purity in the NAI level, but we also lack in some ways that because we don't generate a lot of money through TV and, and ticket sales, that we don't then have the resources to pour that back into our players and to their development, to their experiences. Time for a quick 30-second timeout. Coach Noel, getting this podcast to you is all because of my friends at Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout is hands down the easiest and best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Google Podcast, and so many more. You'll also get a great-looking podcast website. They provide audio players that you can drop into other websites. They give detailed analytics to see how people are listening. To start your own podcast, follow the link in my show notes. 
Let Buzzsprout know I sent you. You'll get a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan. And this also helps support my show. Buzzsprout, the easiest way to start a podcast. It's interesting. I know once, I don't think David Greer, the head coach of Wayne State, would mind me sharing this, but he once told me, he said, Dro, you just really have to make a decision. At the end of the day, coaching is coaching. So if you're coaching in front of 22,000 or 1,200, but you just have to realize that that same guy coaching in front of 22,000 is probably just as good as that guy coaching in front of 1,200. And I just think, you know, if you can get past all that and just really concentrate on the players, that's sometimes what the beauty of, the, you know, Division two, Division three basketball is. No doubt. Once a game begins, you know, the world stops and starts at the end lines of the court. So I, I don't see what's happening, whether there's a few people there or a lot of people there. It's 100% focused on the team, the players, the adjustments, what's happening in front of us. And so would we all love to coach at the very highest level with the best athletes and have that opportunity? I think, I think anybody would be lying if they said they didn't. But, you know, the game of basketball is still the same and you're trying to squeeze the very best effort and intensity and selflessness out of a group on one particular day. And so the exhilaration of, of success and the crushing blows of defeat feel the same no matter how many people were watching or whether it was on TV. We just may not have as many Twitter critics um, <laughs> at our right. level as, as you guys do at yours. Well, you can really, really coach. So let's dive into your coaching abilities. Tell me about the flywheel and loop of doom principle. For years, we've uh, been searching for myself, you know, I've been searching for, you know, if we measured these certain things, what is going to really dictate success? So throughout my entire career, I've I've kept track of a lot of different you know, metrics from the game that we've played and tried to pinpoint, okay, if we do this one thing really well, can that lead to winning? And I, I think you can see different styles across the coaching world where, you know, Tom Izzo is going to be about toughness and rebounding and in different coaches, it's different things. Over the course of my career, I never really settled on one thing because in one game, you could defend really well and not shoot it well and win. In one game, you could shoot it well and not defend well and lose. And one game, you could play poor in one area and not in another. Every game just has a little bit different storyline and there's no clear pattern to success. Last year during during COVID, the state of Michigan came in with some pretty harsh restrictions that hit us smaller schools harder. We didn't have the resources to continue the testing protocol to continue to play through November and December. So we played two games in November, and then we weren't able to play again until the middle end of January. So we did a lot of recruiting. We went down to Indiana a lot. We went to some of these prohibition-style open gyms that were held in the state here, and we did everything we could to get in front of players, but it afforded a lot of time to listen to podcasts on the road and I revisited a podcast with a business author named Jim Collin, and he wrote a book called Good to Great and uh, several others, Entrepreneurship and Entrepreneurship 2.0. And he's got this concept that he talks about in an interview with Tim Ferriss on the Tim Ferriss podcast show, where he works with businesses to determine the most essential things that they need to invest their time, money, and effort into that will build momentum and make the next part of their mission either either easier or almost automatic. So if you focus all your energy into the top priority, the next priority becomes even easier and easier until that circles back and makes the first priority even more beneficial to the program or to the to the company. So the example that he used, which really resonated with me, was was a story about Amazon. And you know, Amazon's flywheel begins with offering a lot of products at a low price. You know, I have their app on my phone. I can go on at any moment and find about anything I'm looking for at a comparable price if I walked into any store. So they offer 
almost any item you can imagine at a competitive price. And by doing that, they attract a lot of customers to their site. So step one, a lot of items, low price, makes step two almost inevitable that a lot of customers are going to visit their site. And the more customers that visit their site, the more third-party sellers they attract, the more people that want to sell, which allows them to expand their distribution and delivery, which allows them to reduce their overhead costs to deliver each and every package. There's an Amazon truck that drives through my neighborhood once every three hours, and it always stops at my house. So I guarantee that that truck is full and it's stopping at every other house and that that delivery price per package drops because of the number of people using their service. And because so many people are using it, they can offer more product at a lower price. And then that flywheel just begins to turn and momentum begins to grow into this unstoppable business model, expands to the point where Jeff Bezos isn't flying private planes. He's you know flying into space. And so he's created this simple model to follow for his company that investing in step one leads to two, leads, leads to three, to four, back to one. And so I became kind of enamored about how do we apply that game of basketball and not just to a program, but to a specific game. What we landed on was breaking down each step of a possession and then attaching measurables to that in the, the most controllable way possible. So how I view the game is going to be different than somebody else. And I think if any coach were to create a flywheel, they would want their flywheel to resonate with their philosophy and their beliefs. But to me, the top priority of a possession of game of basketball, it starts with burning a great shot. You know, on a team that shoots bad shots, it can be perceived as selfishness to the team. And that breaks down the trust, which breaks down the effort and so on. So we work really hard to define what type of shot we want to get. You know, we want layups. We want wide open jump shots. We want to earn fouls by putting pressure on our, on our opponent on the defense. But then specifically to what type of shot each player is capable of making. And we want to encourage them to always take those shots and try to reduce the number of difficult or bad shots that our team could take. But if we take a great shot, we believe that our, our other four players are going to be able to anticipate that shot coming and then get in position to either offensive rebound or balance and transfer transition defense. So we crash three, we put one half back at the nail and then one full back and he's the free safety, nothing behind him. So a fairly aggressive offensive rebounding philosophy. We want to earn second chances because if we take a great shot, we should be able to anticipate. And then regardless of make or miss, we're in position to both rebound and then get back and set our defense. And if we can set our defense and keep our opponent from scoring under seven seconds, then we can guard the ball. We have our best chance to guard the ball with our on-ball defender, with our gap defense, with our help side. If we're playing man, we, we play some two, three like you guys have, but we can get in position. And then in the half court, we, we put a great premium on deflecting passes. If we can just deflect the pass, we're going to disrupt your offense or at least slow you down, disrupt the timing if we don't turn you over. But if we're not capable to, to, to deflect a pass or turn a team over, then we want to force them to shoot the most difficult shot possible, eliminating layups, eliminating wide open jump shots, and hopefully not fouling, and then hold them to one shot. So after we can challenge a shot, hopefully we can have all five guys rebound, advance the ball again before our opponent gets at move the ball, move our players' bodies until we get another great shot. And if we're capable of doing those things one step at a time from earning a great shot to rebounding to getting back in transition and defending the ball and deflecting passes, challenging shots and defensive rebounding and advancing the ball with the pass or dribble as quickly as we can to attack an unset defense. Over the course of however many possessions we can get in the game, you know, I believe we can build momentum. And by focusing on that one priority at a time, you know, it gives our guys a sense of direction. What do we need to do now to help our team succeed? Yeah, so I love it. Your flywheel, great shots and free throws, offensive rebound with balance, set defense, deflect passes with loose balls, challenge shots, all five rebound, attack, 
before defense is set, move ball, move bodies. But I also love your loop of doom. So bad shots, yeah. <laughs> bad shots, turnovers, defense not set, opponents, layups, open shots, opponent defensive boards, fouls and bad reactions, opponent defense set. It's just incredible. I would encourage everyone to go to your Twitter page. It's a pin tweet at the top. I heard you absolutely crushed it at the BCAM, the Michigan BCAM Coaches Clinic about this. And I've, I've had numerous people ask me to have me ask you about this. Can you elaborate a little bit more on the loop of doom? Yeah, absolutely. So if the flywheel is the positive momentum from one possession to the next, you know, a loop of doom is when your opponent's on a 10-0 run. And 10-0 runs for an opponent almost always start with either a live ball turnover or somebody taking a bad shot where nobody's in a position to rebound and they, your opponent gets a long rebound and pushes that before you can get back and they score. And then what happens next is, you know, as they push that ball up the floor on a three-on-two situation, even if they miss a good look early in transition, they're in better position to offensive rebound. And we all know officials are probably twice as likely to call a foul after an offensive rebound and then maybe three times more likely on the second offensive rebound. Mm. Um, so if you're giving up those multiple chances at point-blank range, you're really likely to get a foul called if not just giving up a layup. And we all know when fouls get called, our players are most likely to to have you know bad reactions either towards the referee or towards their teammate for not being in the right spot and so that momentum turns and goes toward your opponent and then they score they shoot a free throw and they get to get back and get their defense set your team my team is frazzled a little bit and we've got to go down and try to attack a set defense to get a good shot and so it's hard to break that cycle where the loop of doom can be you know just a, a spiral you see a team go into a spiral for a few moments a few possessions and so with our team we really work to and we're not very good at this yet but uh, we work to identify the components that lead to our opponent's momentum so that we can disrupt that momentum as fast as possible we'll put drill we'll do drills where we're simulating a live ball turnover and the effort that's required to fix that play you know they've got an advantage they've got a three on two and we've got a fight with great effort to get back into the possession and force them into a half court set instead of scoring you know under seven or they get an offensive rebound okay we can't stop playing we can't foul we can't bail them out how do we fix that problem so we really work to try to correct momentum before it becomes a slide but it's a lot easier said than done and when things become a little bit tough or fragmented it takes a tough-minded team it takes a very you know mentally disciplined team to play through those mistakes and and work together to regain the composure and the momentum of of one possession no how do you make this tangible for your players is this through film is this constantly talking about practice are we gonna as we get timeouts during games touch on some of this like how do we bring this all together for the players for sure so i know you've talked about analytics with some uh, of your other guests and to me analytics are the things that you measure to reinforce what you want to see and don't see mm. so you know we measure our players great shots we use a scale of one to five a four and five is a great shot anything three or below we consider a average to bad so it goes on the bad side so after a game so we can i'll talk a second about what we would do in the midst of of a game to try to correct momentum or draw attention to where we need to be. Mm -hmm. But the day after a game, we're going to come into a film session where we'll show a breakdown of a, of a positive scoring from the flywheel and a negative scoring from some of the loop of doom type sections. So we'll know how many great shots the player took, how many free throws they attempted. You know, for us, we want to make it as controllable as possible. There's not a person in the world that wants to miss a great shot. We just want to affirm them for taking the right ones and then for training themselves to be ready to make the highest percentage possible. But I think the harder you focus on the outcome, the more pressure you put on them to execute it in the moment where 
we really want them to be able to play with the freedom to do the right things and let the outcomes take care of themselves. So measure great shots. We measure free throw attempts as a positive, offensive rebounds, deflections, winning a loose ball, 50-50 ball. Me and you have a chance to get it. If I get that, we're going to chart it as a loose ball one. We measure steals, defensive rebounds, and scoring opportunities created. So opposed to assists, we're looking at scoring opportunities created, which is if I if you pass me the ball drill and I missed a wide open layup, you know, that should be an assist for you, but stats won't show it. So a scoring opportunity is a pass that led to a great scoring chance, even if the ball didn't go through the hoop. So we're really trying to focus on those controllables. That'll give us a total positive contribution to the game. And then we subtract bad shots attempted, turnovers, fouls, bad physical or effort reaction for a total negative, And that gives us a net total contribution to the game. And the way we try to deliver that back to our players is, is a per minute average. You know, how many contributions were you able to make to the team per minute of playing time? And then we can break that down further into how many deflections did you get per minute or deliver it in a way that's a little bit more palatable to the players is how many minutes of playing time did it take you to get one deflection? So this particular player maybe gets one deflection every eight minutes that he plays. Well, this player, you know, another player gets one every four. So how do we increase your production of deflections just by being a little more active with your hands, whether on ball or off ball? So we try to give them these measures in a controllable way, but in a way that they can also comprehend them and we hope work to improve them by the smallest amounts. But in the course of the game, we're not going to be really talking about like flywheel or loop of doom or anything like that. We're going to just try to draw our attention to what we have to do next. Maybe we, maybe our opponent went on a run and we needed to take a timeout. We're going to try not to focus on what happened, but what needs to happen next. Okay, we've got the ball. We're coming down. We need to get a great shot. Okay, let's, let's run a set maybe or an ATO here that's going to give us our best chance to get a good look. And then Let's build some momentum from there. So it's a struggle. I don't do a perfect job of not reacting to what has happened and focusing on what's going to happen next. But that'd be the intention of what we want to do at the moment is how can we as a coaching staff help us to regain uh, our composure, our focus so that we can get momentum back. That's an incredible answer. Awesome job. Okay. So talk to me about a book about tennis the inner game of tennis and how it's such a part of your coaching philosophy. Yeah. So I can make this a long story or a short story, but it's your um, world, your world. No. <laughs> <laughs> so through the course of our program, we've gained and lost momentum. And that's the moment word that I really think about a lot early on. We struggled as a program and then we got a great recruiting class and we built some momentum. And, and four years in, we, we won a conference tournament title. And from that point on, you know, I made some really critical coaching errors and focused a lot more on outcomes and holding guys accountable to their individual production instead of team progress and and the the controllable things that lead to success. But we lost momentum and and we made a promise within our program that we were going to right the ship, that we were going to get back on track and that I myself was going to be the leader that could create the conditions where that would be possible. So it led me down, you know, a a really deep path of learning. I wanted to learn more about the game, things that I didn't know and things that I wasn't doing, which led me to, you know, Phil Jackson as as a huge Bulls fan growing up, a huge Michael Jordan fan, a huge Phil Jackson fan started reading his books and trying to understand, you know, what he did well and why he was able to create teams that seemed to always rise to the occasion as opposed to, you know, the inconsistency of many championship teams, inability to repeat as champions and things like that. So Phil Jackson, uh, the Zen master, really speaks a lot about being mindful, being present, allowing players to play within 
a state of flow. And the way that he goes about creating those teams is, is really incredible. He referenced a lot of books about those things, mindfulness, and some people would refer to it as, as Buddhism and some of the teachings. And Buddhism, while I don't really view it as a religion, is more of a practice of learning how to be in the moment. But all of those different books and, and teachings led to uh, a book called The Inner Game of Tennis. And The Inner Game of Tennis is the story of and the self kind of biography of a tennis pro in California and his journey to helping others learn how to play the game of tennis in a way that they could navigate their own development and arrive at the best possible destination through being more mindful, being more present and learning to separate what he could, what he calls yourself one, um, which is the voice, kind of the voice inside your head and yourself two, which is kind of your body, your doer, your, your ability, your natural instincts. And so I think we could all resonate this as basketball players and coaches that we have this critical voice that telling us we can or can't or should or shouldn't or you make a mistake and we're beating ourselves up with that inner voice and our players are doing the same thing but if we can learn to quiet that voice and just listen to our instincts and be in the moment and be in you know the present then we have our best chance to react in that moment when you listen to interviews of great players and if anybody's ever been fortunate enough to feel kind of being in the flow they know that they're not really thinking if they ask if you ask a person how did you make that incredible play on the basketball court or catch on the football field their answer is typically you know I don't know how I did it it just kind of happened and that's because they were in such a deep state of focus and, and being present that their instincts took over their ability came through and it was able to accomplish its full potential in that moment and so the inner game of tennis kind of outlines a way the way that you can work with a player and work with a team to allow them to feel their way to being their best self instead of trying to dictate each and every movement and do it exactly this way with you know shooting mechanics or anything really it's just allowing players and a team to be who they are their best authentic self to be present in the moment without such a critical judgmental voice inside their head and so you know, we work with our team on being mindful and being present on allowing themselves to get into that state of, of you know flow or the zone or whatever you would call it so they can be at their best without concern of the outcome or without judging themselves on a make or a miss or you know without attaching their individual value to the outcome or to their own performance that's awesome i know nick nurse has spent a lot of time with phil jackson he has a book out i probably should get it it's you know similar to you know he tried to incorporate a lot of that with the raptors you know i remember sacred hoops and phil jackson he would talk about this righteous anger like his players knew when he was really really upset but the power of words and coaching do you ever think about what you say to your players before you say it i do it doesn't always come out the way that i prepared it or that i intend to you know my father was is a very introspective person and i think he you know being in in the farming industry and he spends hours and hours on the on tractor and combine and doing different things and he would put a lot of thought into any message that he wanted to give to me mm. um, i remember i played in an all-star game my my senior year of high school and i spent the entire warm-ups you know trying to show off and do whatever dunks i i thought i could do and then i played really poorly in the all-star game and about five months later my dad came to me and said you know, at the all-star game, you know, I felt like you really had a chance to show what you were capable of and you, you wasted the opportunity trying to impress people in a different way. But he, he had thought about that message for five months before mm. he told me and I, that's, that really hit me. And so I probably spend a lot of time thinking about a message that I want to deliver and, and trying to choose the right words and make sure that players know first and foremost that who they are as a person is more important to me than who they are as a basketball player. I want to make sure that our message always 
allows them to know that their value comes from who they are, not what they do, but that what we're doing is important. And so I, I try to pick those, pick the words that are going to help balance those two things that it's, Hey, you did this thing, but you are not what you did. It's those are separate. And so I would like to think that I deliver messages that way, but I'm sure I fail a lot more than I succeed in crafting a message that will resonate with them and and help us both to get to where we want to go. So um, I think a lot about the words that I use and I mess them up a lot more often than I get them right. Leadership. It's not about me. What does this mean? Well, the way I think of leadership is that leadership is service. If the goal of the program is to make me look good or to advance myself as a coach, then I'm doing it completely wrong. So nothing that we're doing in our basketball program is about me. And what I'm hoping we're doing is doing something that's about us, that I'm investing in the team and helping to guide them toward the goals and dreams that they have as a group and how they can individually contribute uh, contribute to that. But at the end of the day, those things that they're doing and trying to accomplish aren't aren't to fulfill my goals and dreams. It's to fulfill what we believe we can accomplish together. And so how I view my role as a leader is to serve and to work for our players and that what they want to get out of the experience is my job to try to create the conditions where that's possible. But it's not for my it's not for my benefit. It's not for my gain in any way. So I'm about ten years older than you. Although you sound much wiser than me just listening to you in this podcast. But so at soon to be 47, should I still be writing down my own dreams? That's an awesome question. I think we write down things that are important to us. And so if uh, if you're having dreams that uh, you believe have importance, then you should absolutely be writing them down, journaling them, um, keeping track of your thoughts that you can come back to or you know, for myself personally, anything that I write down, I have a much better chance of retaining and remembering. So when I read a book, I keep notes on it and I have a much better recall, but then I can also scan back through and, and find important points and keys that I want to use as a message to the team. So, you know, if your dreams uh, you feel have significance, then you should absolutely be writing them down in journal and, um, and seeing where that thought exercise leads you to. You talk to your players constantly about dreaming and writing down their dreams? We do. I mean, we one of the first questions we ask any recruit is, is what is your dream job? I think that a lot of our young people are being trained to think in a very logical way. You know, you've got to seek a career that pays well and does these things. And, and that's obviously important. You know, providing quality of life for the people that you want in it is, is essential. But if, if you ask somebody what their dream is, a lot of times they'll say it's something different than what their intended major is. And so with our players, we, we encourage them to set really big dream. And, and the, the way that we think of a dream is something that you aspire to do, but maybe you don't have complete control over. So a goal is something that you can accomplish without the assistance or, or decision-making from somebody else. But a dream, you know, if a player says it's their dream to be in the NBA, and even NAI players have that dream, and it's difficult, but it's possible for some, you know, then they have to then work to understand the steps that it takes to get there. Like, how good do you have to be at the NAI level to be able to gain the attention of the NBA and, and then set the commitments that it's going to take to be that good to accomplish the dream? So we want our players to set big dreams. We want them to identify those milestones and those steps that are going to be required to get there. And a lot of times that requires researching somebody that's made it to where they want to go from a similar position in life. 
and then identify the daily commitments that are going to be required to reach step one and then adjust and discern and try to figure out how to get to step two and make the commitments that are going to take to get there. And we follow the same process from our season. We set out goals and dreams for a season. And every team in our league has the same goals, same dreams. And then we set up the milestones that we need to try to knock down. You know, we need to win our first game at some point. And we need to win a game on the road. And we need to win a home game. And we need to win a conference game. And we target some specific teams that are rivalries or that are going to you know, help us in the, the national standing or how people view our team and in the case of an at-large bid. And we write those down as, as things that we're going to build toward our ultimate dream for the year. And then we try to ask our players to understand the commitment level that it's going to take from a day-to-day basis to reach the first milestone and then build momentum to the second milestone. And, you know, I really believe that in life you, you get what you want unless you don't really want it or you're not willing to pay the price. And if you have a dream, you know, you, you have to learn and commit to what it's going to take to get it. And a lot of times people will realize that the dream they say they have, they, they don't really want because their actions don't back up that initial statement. So you just mentioned recruiting. You've recruited and coached six All-Americans. I think I someone told me today you have six players currently that are playing professionally. Can you share any recruiting tips for young coaches? Well, I'd be lying if I took credit for recruiting those six players or any really any of the other guys that we have on our roster. You know, our associate head coach, Adam Kerfoot, is, he's a superstar. Um, how we've been able to keep him on our staff as long as we have, I don't know, um, but he does a phenomenal job in recruiting and attracting players to our program. And once we bring them to a point of interest, then, you know, our recruiting process is really about being as, as bluntly honest as we possibly can. Uh, and, and we work to determine if Madonna is the right fit from an academic standpoint. Do we offer a major that's going to help you to get to the dreams that you have in life? Do we offer the academic setting, the classroom sizes that, that a player is going to be comfortable and thrive in? Do we offer the campus experience that a player is looking for? And in a small school, that's big difference between us and Eastern Michigan, us and Michigan State. So they have to be aware of those things. And then they have to get to know us as a coaching staff. Do we coach in a style that is going to be conducive to their success, that they can trust, that they can believe in, and that we can relay to them that we believe and trust in them? And do does our style benefit their abilities? And do their abilities contribute to our style? And do they have the opportunity to make a major contribution to our program? And if they do, how soon into their time at Madonna? So those are conversations that we have as truthfully as possible, because if, if a player comes to Madonna, we want to have that foundation of trust where they know they've been told the truth, that the expectations are going to be high, and they know that it's a meritocracy and they're going to have to earn every opportunity that they get, but they should have a really good understanding of what our belief in them is and that uh, we see their ability to contribute in the way that we told them they could. And then at, at our level, we do have to talk about finances. You know, not everybody's either on a full ride or walk on. There's a varying level of some guys getting full rides, some guys getting partials and combination of academic, athletic, and financial aid, and some guys getting very little. So, you know, it has to be a good academic fit. It has to be a good athletic fit, and it has to be a good financial fit. And if those things line up, then we've had really good success with our staff of helping them to develop and grow into the role that they're capable of and seeing that success on the court and helping, you know, helping that player to help our team succeed, which garners them that individual recognition and ultimately the opportunity to continue to play if that's possible. So you get these guys, how do you get them better? That's a great question as well. 
Um, I think you have to be very specific about what the team needs and and what they're capable of doing to contribute to those team needs. You know, the, the offense that we play is going to be flexible to fit the specific skills and specialties of our players. You know, two years ago, we had a really dynamic first-team All-American point guard, and we altered some things to give him the space and put him in a position where he could lead and, and be a playmaker for our team. And then last year, the conference player of the year was a four-man. So we, we had to alter some things to fit his strengths. And then just putting him in positions, I think, where they can utilize their abilities consistently, where they know what shots they're supposed to take and, and what they can be really good at. And then outside of practice, helping them to get the repetitions at those specific uh, shots. And I, I genuinely believe going back to, you know, the conversation about the inner game of tennis and that if we can take the the outcome away from their thought process, if we can relieve the pressure of thinking about the outcome of a game or the outcome of a shot and give our players the freedom to just play within the moment, that allows them to grow and develop. You know, if if a coach, if, if I was going to be really hard on a player for missing a good shot and shame them or blame them, it's going to put a greater sense of urgency and, and weight on their shoulders when they go to take that next that shot the next time. Or if we lose a game and I go into the locker room and I, I put that on one of the players right. as their responsibility that we lost, I think that that creates an atmosphere where, where they can't grow, where they're afraid to try because they know they're going to be singled out for something going wrong. So we want to create an atmosphere of ownership from the coaching staff, myself specifically, where if we lose a game, it's because I didn't have the team prepared. It's because the game plan that I asked them to play didn't work. We didn't practice the right way. We didn't have the right substitutions. I didn't make the right timeout. It's my fault that we didn't lose or that we didn't execute and win the game. It's also my responsibility to fix that for the next time. So it's it's not shrinking or passing, not a fake level of ownership. I recognize that it's, it's my responsibility to create those conditions where we win. But at the same time, I think we need to have a great sense of humility in that when we win, we spread that um, the credit out and the players get the credit for success and the assistant coaches get the credit for success, for their, their suggestions and for their preparation of the players. And so an atmosphere where there's a reduced amount of fear of failure and there's an increased sense of accomplishment for success, I think allows players to thrive and grow. And so we try to create that that paradoxical environment within our program of extreme ownership but also extreme humility that's an awesome answer so i'm currently an assistant coach for fred castro at eastern michigan with their women's program and this guy coach castro is a rock star like great coach and he's been starting to give me the freedom to coach kind of some we we kind of split up the teams every day and i i've been taking the not the second team but some of the teams that are prepared like kind of the scout team but we mix and match but (laughs) needless to say Today, we didn't play very well, and the, and the ladies looked at me, and they're like, Joe, 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 and I've learned now, like, this coming back, I've learned to just really shut up and just like, and I told the ladies today, you know what, I'll take this one. Give me an F. You guys took a B, and they're like, what? And I was just like, you know, just the idea of just like, I failed you guys today, and they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, I didn't really give you guys anything good to run today, and I just love that. I just love that, you know, you just, you know, taking the ownership on yourself, your staff. You know, I sure I know those are some difficult conversations where you have to look yourself in the mirror, but that's a great way. And I'm sure your players at the end of the day really run for a wall for you because you, you know, don't put all the attention on them. Well, it's not that we're asking them to do this, but you, you notice when the, the, the head of any organization takes the ownership for anything that doesn't go well, what ends up happening is the players then say, well, coach that don't don't say that or don't take the the blame for that there's something i could have done better 
and we're not asking our guys to do that. And it's, it's not, we're not taking ownership so that they do take responsibility for their own. It's a natural byproduct. And so when you said that to your players at practice today, they probably thought, wow, man, he's taking responsibility for what he felt he could have done better. You know, I'm sure there's some things I could have done better. Maybe tomorrow, you know, I'll be a little better in my role and I'll help him out in the way that he wants to help me out. So, you know, that's that's absolutely the atmosphere that we want to create is where they're not there's not finger pointing. We go back to a little earlier in the conversation when I say that I did a lot of things that created our program to lose momentum and fall behind. That specifically is what I did wrong. If we lost a game, I put it on. I put it on the quote unquote leaders of the team. I said, you know, we lost. It's your fault. You didn't do the things you were supposed to do to help us win. And immediately they would deflect and say, hey, coach, man, this guy didn't do what he was supposed to do either. So I created a culture of blaming others. And that just spread through the locker room. And we, we became a team that didn't like each other, didn't play hard, that was afraid to make mistakes because they knew they'd be blamed for them after. And I really destroyed the camaraderie and the culture of our of our program by doing that and by focusing back to, you know, the process-based thinking, doing and creating the atmosphere where, where success can be possible by taking ownership of everything that doesn't go the right way and, and then giving credit to everybody else when things do go well. In a locker room now, you know, after a game, our stars would be going into the, the press interviews. And I say press, it's just our sports information office. And they would be talking about all the great things that their teammate did. You know, they'd say, so-and-so, you scored 30 points tonight. And they said, well, you know, my teammates set great screens for me and got me the ball. And then they'd go, well, you segregate. And they'd just keep passing the credit around. And, and that's a fun team to play on where you're celebrating each other. Um, you're taking ownership of the things that don't go well. And players won't do that unless the leadership does that in an authentic and genuine way. You can't fake those things. Well, I always end the podcast, and this has been an epic one. What are some simple tips for young coaches? That's a phenomenal question. and. So I think in, in the style of, you know, a letter to my younger self, these are the things that I wish I would have known or worked on or done when I had the opportunity to coach before I knew what I was doing. I wish I had been more concerned about my trajectory than my position, learning and growing as opposed to where our team currently was or where, where I currently was in the coaching world. Comparison is the thief of all joy. And it's easy to look around at people who are further ahead or have had opportunities that you haven't had or I haven't had. So rather than be focused on where I ranked or compared to others or where our team was at, you know, I, I wish I'd always just been more concerned about being on the right path, on the right trajectory, on, on a path of learning and growing, as opposed to just focused on the current situation around me. I, I would suggest anybody anywhere, start reading, start reading everything you get your hands on now and do it as a daily habit. My life changed completely when I started to delve into learning about what other great people have done and how they became, who they became, um, studying leadership, studying coaching, studying business, studying you know what makes a successful culture, just learning about everything and everywhere because it'll all translate back to running a microorganism or a micro uh, organization of a team. And so, you know, I wish I had started reading, you know, really reading sooner. And I would recommend any young coach to just make time to to pick up books and read. I think it's very, very critical to do what's important before you do what's urgent. As coaches, we can be really focused on, you know, what I have to do right now. And right now I have to prepare for this next game and I have to do this this urgent, urgent task. And we neglect the things that are very important and things like our health, things like our sleep, uh, things like our relationships, things, you know, that 
when time goes by and coaching ends and basketball is done and we look back and if we've neglected our health and neglected our relationships and neglected our family, what's going to be left? And so, you know, I think it's a priority for any coach anywhere to, to identify what's important to them, what they what their priorities are and to do what is important before you do what's urgent. Carve out time for exercise. Carve out time to make sure that you're eating the right things. Carve out time to read. Make sure you get your sleep. You know, I'm a better coach. I have a better disposition when I do those things. I'm more present for my players when things are right at home. And, um, you know, all the things outside of basketball carry with us onto the court. So health is falling apart and you're not sleeping well and relationships at home are, are crumbling. You, you probably won't be in a good position to coach anyway. So by doing first things first, it makes the second things even more effective and, and you'll be more uh, able to do that job well. I think it's important for any coach or young coaches to just learn to be more efficient rather than just focus on hours and invested. And it's, there's, I admire grinding and there's times that I really have to grind and spend a lot of time to prepare and get ready. And you know, this weekend we had two games and I got to watch a lot of film to get ready. I'm, I'm spending a lot of time this week to prepare, mm-hmm. but I, I have to learn to be most efficient in my preparation rather than just spending a lot of time to do it. So how can I better analyze an opponent through the, the minimum amount of film to really know who they are and be prepared? And there's a time to watch four or five games, but there's a time to know what an opponent's going to do in less than that. And so if I can maximize my film watching and be more efficient and still have the answers to the test, you know, that's better for everybody because now I can be more productive. I think any young coach, and that's something that, you know, I've always tried to do, but um, is to just be genuinely interested in the person that you're talking to. That's to me, that's the definition of networking. And you ask a lot of coaches about networking and mm-hmm. networking is just taking a genuine interest and in having concern for the person that you're talking to, not necessarily trying to get something from them, but just trying to learn about them. And that relationship builds and trust is earned. And over time, when, when a situation arises where they have a player that, that may be interested, they're going to help you out. They're going to give you a call. But any person that you meet, whether it's, you know, somebody of a lowly position or of a high, you know, caliber and coaching or something, just taking a genuine interest is the best approach to me to, to building a relationship. I mentioned this at another time, but I, I hope all young coaches and any coach know that their value comes from who they are and not just what they do. It's easy to identify as a coach or a winning coach or, you know, a coach that's struggling, but value comes from who you are intrinsically. It's immeasurable and it's equal across all human beings and no title, no amount of money, no accomplishment can change that intrinsic, equal, immeasurable value. And so, you know, a person's value comes from who they are, God given, and it doesn't come from from what you do and it doesn't come from what you accomplish. And by removing those two things, it allows you to be at your best. If my value comes from winning a game on Friday, then I'm going to put a lot of pressure on my players to win that game because I have to be validated by it. But if I'm good, then I can allow my, my players to explore the game and be at them at their best. And it gives us a better chance to win it if, if they don't feel the pressure of winning to validate myself or themselves. And so I think those would be, you know, the things that, that I wish I had known and things that I think, you know, a young coach would benefit from knowing as well. Well, Coach Noel, I got to get you to bed. I asked for 30 minutes and we went for 60. <laughs> I am told so, you I could talk, so I apologize. I am so appreciative. You're truly the epitome of what I wanted in this podcast. And that's to find good coaches at any level. 
and tell their story. And this conversation to me has been incredible. I would encourage any coach to follow your Twitter page. You are constantly evolving, learning. I really want to come to your office here in the next couple of weeks and just look at your playbook. You're an incredible, active learner. You're a great coach, but I think you're even a better person. And I just want to thank you today for helping so many young coaches. Well, Coach Drill, man, I appreciate you doing this. I can appreciate the vulnerability that it took to step out and start a podcast like this, not knowing who would join you, who would listen. But it's been it's been a pleasure of mine to listen to each and every episode and to the different coaches and their stories, but also to hear your insight and your experiences and to follow the journey of, of you as a father and as a husband and your family and your journey from you know, transitioning from one position to the next. Um, you know, I appreciate your vulnerability and I appreciate your willingness to, to put other coaches in, in a position to talk about, you know, their vision and their, the way they see the game. And um, I'm extremely humbled that you would include me in the, in the incredible list of coaches that you've had on the podcast. And I can't thank you enough for what you're doing and, and for giving me the opportunity. Have a great season, Coach. Thank you. That was a great conversation with Coach Noel Emenheiser, who is writing down their dreams right now. Love that so much. First time for sure that we have had a coach cover that topic on this podcast. The Game Flywheel and the Loop of Doom. Wow, you can't make this up. So incredible. And I'm so thankful that Coach Noel shared. I also need to read the inner game of tennis tomorrow. What I really love about Noel is that he's been a head coach since he was 25. Think about that. However, at the age of 37, he's still hungry as ever to be a better coach and a better leader. Truly inspiring to me. Thank you, Coach Noel Emenheiser, for sharing your story. Subscribe, rate, and review on whatever platform you are currently listening. And we are everywhere. Follow Tell Me Your Story Coach on Instagram at Tell Me Your Story Coach. Follow Tell Me Your Story Coach on Twitter at Coach Kevin Dro. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Kevin Monjo. Stay safe, be you, keep coaching, and see you on the next episode of the Tell Me Your Story Coach podcast.